to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is Delaney Stoner, and I'm the Families Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee, Florida, and our heart is to reach the city by loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We'd love to have you join us as we gather each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. If you would like to make a financial contribution, learn more about DCC, or contact us, please visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon, and thank you for being a part of our mission as we continue to spread the gospel to Tallahassee and beyond. James is this interesting book because it's written to Christians who are facing persecution, uh, and specifically, uh, James, the first chapter, starts out addressing um, trials. It's, a, it's an idea or a subject that everybody can identify with because the inevitability of life is that we all go through trials. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're Buddhist, if you're you know, Hindu, if you're agnostic, if you're atheist. Every single one of us, the experience of life is that we go through trials. And James starts off with this weird tension in verse 2 when he says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And that is, sounds like a, a, basically a weird um, sadistic call to self-harm. It's like, consider it joy when people hate you. You know, consider it joy when you get fired. Consider it joy when just life seems so insurmountably overwhelming that you just don't know how to operate anymore. Consider it joy when you're facing divorce. Consider it joy when you're chasing, facing bankruptcy. Consider it joy when you're facing relational bankruptcy. And all of us think, you know, amen. You know, I'm glad I went to church this morning because that's what I was thinking. I am just so overwhelmed that I, it just wells up this joy inside of me. Um, so it's this odd tension that's presented in verse 2, which he goes on to explain, he says, and here's why, not just because you're a group of weirdos who love self-harm, but because the testing of your faith develops endurance. In other words, God is using that to develop our capacity, our endurance, our ability, our patience, our long-suffering, and that, once it has completed, brings maturity. In other words, one of the ways that God grows us and matures us is through the testing in the developing of our faith, is that as we are tested, as God strategically uses that, doesn't give it to us, but allows us to walk through those seasons, as we're going to read about today, we, in fact, grow in our ability to handle more. In fact, isn't this true? You've seen this the older you've been in life. In fact, I saw it this weekend as I um, had the wonderful opportunity of parenting a one-year-old and a three-year-old without a spouse uh, this weekend. Uh, so which, needless to say, our house is very clean right now. Um, and, and I think about myself if I was, you know, and perhaps, you know, you were a younger parent than I was, but I'm thinking, man, if I would have done that when I was 20 or 21, like I couldn't get myself out of bed and clean my own, you know, my own, in fact, my room's still dirty, but nonetheless, you know, I would have been a terrible parent, but as God has given me more, the trials of, of sleepless nights, the trials of responsibilities, the trials of more and more and more, what happens is, is your capacity to do more and to be more grows, aka your endurance or your long suffering leads to your maturation. Now, here's the problem. James this morning tags on to the end of that because here's what we all know. Simply knowing that the trials that we go through in life lead to maturity, doesn't in and of itself bring joy, right? You may know that there is a positive end through which you are going through, yet and still, that doesn't elicit a sense of joy inside of your soul. It elicits a sense of like, 
Is that actually worth it? Isn't there an easier way? Isn't there perhaps a more efficient way to grow my maturity as I walk through this? So James doesn't end there. He actually tags on in the verses that we're going to read this morning in verses 9 through 18 of James chapter 1. Before we get there, I want to, I want to tell you a couple of things to kind of set us in the right direction as it relates to trials. These are some things that in trials, I've noticed... These are, there, there are lots of things of trials that, you know, you could probably notice. These are just the things that I sat down and thought about and had some time this week because it's kind of what I do is I just sit down and think from time to time about what we're going to be talking about. And as I sat down and thought about, these are some things about trials that I thought were, you know, just interesting or noteworthy. So here, here's the first one. Trials by nature are stressful and in their stress naturally draw our attention to the immediate. Trials by nature are stressful right? There's no trial that's not stressful. If it's not stressful, it's probably not a trial. In fact, for some of you, that's your problem with people like me who don't feel a lot of stress a lot of the time is you feel like this is a trial and you feel, should feel stress. And we're like, man, whatever. You know, some of you, everything's a trial because everything's stressful. That's another, you know, therapy session for another day. But as he goes through, you know, the, the start of this is that trials are by nature stressful and stress by nature draws our attention to the immediate. And here's what you also know. The greater the stress or the greater the trial, the greater the attention to the immediate, to the dismissal of what else is out there. The greater the trial, the greater the stress, the greater the attention to the immediate, to the dismissal of thinking about or focusing on anything else. Now, I'll give you a really simple example to explain this. Next time you see somebody drowning in a pool, okay, let's say, you know, in June you're going to go and it's pool time and you're going to be at, you know, one of the wonderful pools that we have around our city. And as you're swimming in the pool, you see, you know, let's say, let's say you see somebody who's about 20 years old and they're drowning in a pool. Now, if that happens, you should not stop and ask this question. This would not be a good time to do this. But let's just say hypothetically, you stop and you say, oh, they're drowning. Hey, what are you doing for Christmas, guy that's drowning? He would... If he could punch you in the throat, he would punch you in the throat because he's drowning. He's about to die. He's not thinking, you know what? Actually, you know, last year we spent the Christmas with our in-laws. This year I think we're going to spend it in town. So let me tell you about what's happening long-term with our family and our plans. No, when you're drowning, that's all you can think about because the level of stress, the level of trial, the level of immediacy that that draws is so extraordinarily high, you can't think about anything else. And isn't that true in just about every level of trial in your life? The greater the trial, the greater the stress, the greater the difficulty it is to see anything besides what's in front of us. And here's why that matters. The greater the tendency to look at what's immediate because of the impending pressure, the greater the tendency to try to figure out some way to escape that pressure. Here's what I mean. We all have been in trials where there is a way to escape some of that pressure. And the nature of that is kind of what we would call in the church world temptation. And so we will choose something that's not best for us now because it helps to relieve the pressure right now. It happens all the time. Let me just give me an example. In relationships, 
You'll have someone who's just lonely and lonely and lonely, and the longer you go with being lonely, the more isolated you feel, the less you want to feel that way, and the more you desire companionship. And so you will choose a companion who ultimately, interestingly, will cause you more pain, more stress, more suffering, because you know they're not the right person for for you. But that level of loneliness, that level of stress, that level of this is all that I can see right now will cause us to make bad decisions that we know aren't good for us temporarily or long-term and can potentially cause us to make worse long-term decisions. And isn't this true? We've all seen it. Seen people who perhaps were under some kind of financial pressure and made terrible financial decisions that were gonna long-term set them up for some really, really rocky roads, but it let this temporal sense because the nature of trials and stress is you can only see what's right in front of you and you will do just about anything the longer that that pressure exists. Now, as James launches in, he is going to essentially try to create for us, or I'm gonna essentially try to create for us what James is speaking to the first century church which is to choose to shift our focus, to choose to shift our focus to what's eternal as opposed to what's temporal, though it's very difficult. The great thing about James is he is deeply practical. So here's what I want you to know. As we go in this morning, I hope the stuff that we talk about, I hope as we go for an entire shift in focus, it's not ethereal, but you leave here this morning with the practical of how do you, especially if you're in the middle of a trial right now, create a focus that shifts to the eternal and glorifies God because of it. So if you've got your Bible, you can up to James chapter one. We're gonna start at verse nine as he gets the ball rolling. James chapter one, verse nine, he says, the brother, as of the Christian, in humble circumstances. Now, one of their things is they were a persecuted church. I already said that. But as they're persecuted church, persecuted people generally aren't prosperous, right? Uh, it's hard to say, hey, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I want to throw you in jail and potentially kill you. By the way, can I buy a cupcake from your company? Um, just doesn't really happen. So they faced a lot of fiscal persecution, uh, fiscal uh, basically marginalization. Now there's a couple that were rich and he's going to address those in a second. But he says, okay, for those of you who have this sense in the early church of the material wealth that isn't there because of your faith, you're facing a trial because of it. Here's what I want you to know and shift your focus. He said, the brother in the humble circumstance ought to take pride in his high position. Now, as he says that, the idea is not that, you know, it's just, it's so glorious to not have anything. It's that you would identify with Christ in that. Because if you think about money, the dynamics of money, and again, this is probably fairly intuitive, is money um, gives you security, money gives you value, and money gives you power. Money gives you security, money gives you value, and money gives you power. And so, as Christians, our source of value, security, and authority ought not come from what we have because what we have isn't going to last for very long. And so if we put our hope and our trust in that, what he's about to say is it's fleeting, and not just that's fleeting, but we're fleeting, verse 10. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like the wildflower. Now, it's interesting He doesn't say the money will pass away. He says, you will pass away. Continues. For the sun rises 
with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, this isn't a call of James saying, hey, you're an evil person if you're of material wealth. Just pause with this, and I've said this before. If you have a lot, you should never feel guilty. You should just simply feel responsible. If you have a lot, you should never feel guilty. You should simply feel responsible that God has given you this to manage and to steward. But he says, come on. This is like the person for the early church, their trial, their financial trial. He says, if you don't have a lot, then I don't want you to think that God's unhappy with you, that I don't want you to think this is the end. I want, you to sh- I want to shift your focus that you will spend eternity in glory with God. And if you have a lot right now, don't obsess your life with simply the pursuit of the acquisition of wealth. Like, yeah, you should go. You should work hard. You should be diligent. You should be responsible. And if God gives you a lot, that is a fantastic thing. I was kind of thinking about it this way. This is a really, really, really silly illustration, so pardon my elementariness. In in a couple months here, we're going to do one of these glorious things that we do. It's called Florida State football, okay? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. A couple of people still awake this morning. Now, can you imagine at a football game, right? One of the things that people love to do at the end of the football games, or one of the things I used to do when I was little at the, at the end of football games, was collect all the cups, okay? Now, I want you to imagine, they used to have really sweet cups, by the way. I, don't, I think their cup game is kind of downgraded, but nonetheless. Can you imagine that someone at the beginning of a football game, right? There's a bunch of cups laying around the stadium, and someone, you know, goes to kick off the ball. And as soon as kickoff starts, they just go around scrambling to, uh, to get as many cups as possible. And then as soon as the kickoff, you know, as soon as the first down starts or the first real play, you know, the, 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 uh, the offense goes onto the field, the defense goes on the field, you know, Willie Taggart, you know, is about to just m- dismantle Virginia Tech in the first game of the season. And as, you know, they're starting to happen, you know, somebody says, look at how many cups I have. And then by second down, all of the cups are gone. Now, Weird illustration, but let me tell you why I say that. This is kind of what happens when it comes to wealth. It's like, man, man, cups are cool, but that is absolutely not the intention of why we're here. And by the way, all that stuff is not going to last anyways. It's not a bad thing. If you got cups, great, cool. James is basically saying to the poor brother, man, cool, he's got cups. To the rich brother, yeah, cool, you got cups. But either way, cups aren't really the point and they're not going to last because you're going to have a three-year-old that just dismantles everything. And he continues on and says, look, look again, verse 12, let me shift your focus. He states it very plainly. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now it's interesting because what he's, what he's saying is, and as you go through these trials, I mean, remember that here and now, here and now, here and now is not the ultimate goal. What is the ultimate goal is that we would end this life and we would receive the crown of life and we would spend eternity united with Jesus, united in heaven, united in paradise where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there are no trials. What he's not saying is if you endure endure, endure, depends on which part of the country you're from. But if you endure, then at the end of it, you have earned your salvation because you got to look who the promise is made to. The promise is made to those who love him. 
Those who love him will receive the crown of life. Those who love him will be the ones who persevere. That the goal of perseverance is not for us to simply you know, white knuckle our will through it. It's to fall more and more in love with Jesus, have the perspective of the eternal. And in doing so, we are given the power and the desire to persevere. You see, here's what we again all know intuitively about trials. Is it pulls at our desire. It pulls at our desire for comfort. It pulls at our desire for ease. It pulls out our desire to have our best life. And what happened in the early church is as they faced these trials, some of them, because of the level of trial, because of the level of persecution that they were going through, would sometimes be tempted to say, it's God who's giving me this trial. It's God who has put this in my place. And a lot of times we say it, this way, God, why is this happening to me? God, why? I mean, just to be empathetic for a second, you get news that's terrible news from the doctor. You get news that's terrible news from somebody in your family. And our first thought is, why? Why, God, why are you doing this? And in their attempt to shift their focus towards the eternal, James had to go through what would be the character of God to explain how the dynamic of trials shifts our focus. But first he says, let me address this idea that we ask God and blame God for this, verse 13. And so when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, this is a huge idea and thought. God does not supernaturally protect us from the fallen and broken and sinful world that we live in. He doesn't say, if you believe in me and if you have enough faith, you will never go through a trial again. But God does promise that as you inevitably walk through the trials in life, there is a higher focus. And there, in fact, is a way that God can and will use this trial to help you to mature and grow in your relationship with him. He says, but let me explain this internal dynamic that draws our focus down to the temporal. Verse 13, or 14, I'm sorry. But each one is tempted by his own evil desire when he is dragged away and enticed. In other words, let me see if I can communicate this clearly. Trials create an external dynamic. That dynamic draws at our internal brokenness. And it tries to pull us away and drag us away in this desire as it grows. He continues. Verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, as desire grows and grows and grows and grows, and eventually gives birth, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, This is the progression of the sinful nature. And simply knowing and being able to identify this is so powerful. If you, I mean, everybody in here is dealing with some sort of a habitual, you know, cyclical pattern of sin that we try to break and that we try to fight against, right? Because there's about 90% of sin that's not really that enticing to you. But there's about 10% that just has its hooks in you or has a tendency to have its hooks in you. He says, come on, this is the dynamic. That you have a desire 
And trials especially, because they force us to look at the immediate, pull at this desire inside of us. And this desire, as it comes along, it gives birth to actual action. So you desire something for a little while, and you wanted it, and that looked nice, and that looked attractive, and that looked like an easy way out, and that just looked so, honestly, it made me feel good. It made me feel not lonely. It made me feel not stressed. It made me feel like I was alive again. And so eventually, as that desire grew inside of my head, as I allowed myself to entertain that desire, that desire gave birth to the act of sin. And then that sin eventually became numb. Because what it used to be a big deal now is normal. And sin has an incredible way of normalizing itself. And as it normalizes, eventually it gives birth to death. We've all seen this. The death of a relationship, the death of a career, the death of a family. Because there was some type of an internal desire and we could not focus on anything else. And so as James gives his discourse, he now transitions and says, but let me give you a better desire. Let me give you a desire that perhaps is far greater than any desire that you currently feel feel, or feel. He continues. Verse 16. He says, so do not be deceived, my dear brother. Brothers, plural, people. Anyway, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, those are all significant. Those, the way that he describes God, that he is, the, you know, he is good, or he gives every good and perfect gift. It's from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, being that he is the one from light, and that he does not change. He's not different yesterday and today. So sometimes when we go through trial, we say, God, what happened? What do I do? God, why are you mad at me now? Because I was doing the same thing that I was doing yesterday, but all of a sudden I have a trial. God is the exact same God in the entire process. But he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived because we have an internal tendency to do the exact opposite. We have an internal tendency to when things go bad, say, why God? And when things go good, say, man, I did a great job, right? Very few of us, I mean, you were given a project at work and you killed it. I mean, you killed it. And like you walked away from the meeting knowing that you killed it and you landed the deal and all of a sudden, the, you know, your boss calls you in and they say, just, wow, you know, you are just the best employee in the history of our organization. How did we get so lucky, you know? And by the way, here is a raise and you thought, man, glory to God. <laughs> we think, man, I killed it. I did so good. You get into the school perhaps that you're trying to get into or the grad program that you're trying to get into and you think, man, I, I worked so hard to get to where I am. Yet, when things go poorly, we say, God, why? Let, if you don't hear anything else, this might be the most important thing you hear. The reason why this is so important is as long as we look to God for the bad and ourself to the good, when things go bad, we'll look to ourselves to cause more good, which will inevitably create more bad. Let me say that again. This is a little bit complex. As long as we look to God for the bad and ourself for the good, 
When things go bad, if we are ultimately the source of good, we will continually look at ourselves to create more good, which inevitably will lead to more bad. Because God is the giver of good. It is his character. It is his DNA if he had DNA. And he gives us the example of this. In the very next verse, that if there was ever a question if God was good, if there was ever a question if God was positive, if there was ever, if there was ever a question that God gives good gifts, he says, let me remind you of the ultimate good of the ultimate gift. Very next verse. He, being God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Now, this word of truth, that's essentially, as you boil down to the language and his intent, that essentially is the gospel. He says he chose to give us his one and only son. He chose that in our sinfulness, he did not consider our sinfulness against us. In fact, he knew that we stood condemned because he is a holy God and he knows everything. And so though we didn't deserve it, he sent his son into the world. God within him, the fullness, Jesus within him, the fullness of God dwelt. And he gave his son who was brutally murdered on a cross and hung there for the world to see. Not because God has this overwhelming desire for self-harm and sadistic behavior. It's because God is good. And he so loved us that he gave his one and only son for us. So that we might, as James would say, become kind of the first fruit of all that he created. So that you and I would become in Christ reconciled to God and we would produce positive fruit in the name of Jesus that we would in ourselves be the first fruit of God. Now, in a trial, we have a choice of which to focus on. We have a choice of which to desire and the desire for the immediate is so, so, so extraordinarily strong. So here's what we're gonna do. To give you the practical, I want to go for one second back to verse 12, and then we're going to end with a little bit of, a, of an illustration of this. So verse 12, we're going to go back for one second if you got on the screen. Sorry, I'm throwing a little curveball at you, AV folks, but you can keep up. Verse 12, he says, So blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, of time, stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Here's the, here's the key. The key is simply to love him. The key is simply to love him because in loving him, we are reminded of his goodness. In fact, how we love God is not a desire or not, a, not an intention to say, you know what, all of a sudden today, I'm going I'm to decide to love God. It's to do what he says in verse 16 through 18, which is just to be reminded daily of the goodness of God. Here's how it works. When we realize the depth through which we have been forgiven... Daily, when we realize the love of God poured out for us in Jesus on the cross, you are so, I am so, we are so impacted by the love of God for us in spite of our rebellion and sinfulness. It wells up inside of us a love back for him. And in doing so, we love him. In doing so, it shifts our perspective. In doing so, we persevere. In doing so, we glorify God. In doing so, we are more mature as people and as believers. You see, 
What we try to do is say, you know what? In order to not sin, in order to persevere under this trial, in order to shift my focus, I'm going to desire less. But here's what we all know. You can't decide to desire anything less than you desire it. In fact, oftentimes when you try to desire something less, you only end up desiring it more. The key to desiring sin less in God more, the key to shifting our focus from the temporal to the eternal, the sinful to the holy is simple. It's not to desire sin less, it's to desire God more. And that desire for God eventually eclipses our desire for sin. Our desire for the eternal eventually eclipses our desire to satiate the temporal appetite. Now, this is a really, really silly, uh, I feel like I've given a couple of those this morning, but illustration, because as I was thinking this, I was praying, and, and I know how sermons go, because it's all like theory, 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 so how does this actually look? Um, one of my favorite athletes of all times uh, is, is not a Christian, he's, uh, many of you, probably everybody's heard of um, this fella by the name of Muhammad Ali. Any Muhammad Ali fans? Okay, you can admit that in a church, because I'm a pastor, and he's one of my favorite. Okay, so Muhammad Ali, he was, like, famous for showboating and talking, and, you know, I'm the greatest, the champ is here. So I, I used to box a little bit, and I would walk in and say, the champ is here, and they'd say, the chump is here. Anyway, so I, I, I always loved Muhammad Ali, and one of my favorite quotes that Muhammad Ali has goes something to the effect of this. I hated every minute of training. I hated every second of training. The desire I, let me tease this out a little bit. The desire I had was to stop training, was to say no. When my body was hurting, when my blood was pumping, when my cardio was being, being stretched, my thought was to not train anymore. But I told myself, train now, suffer now, and be a champion forever. In other words, it wasn't that Ali decided, you know what? I just love training. Man, it's just, I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking, I can't wait to go run because no one in their right mind actually enjoys running, you know? I, I, can't, I can't wait to go sit in a ring with somebody else and have them punch me and me punch them and have them, you know, I just love getting punched in the face. It's just so fantastic. But here, here's what he decided. It's not that he all of a sudden loved to train. It's that his desire to live as a champion eclipsed the level of temporal pain. That he knew that he was going to go through this. This was an inevitability of what he had to do in order to become who he was called to be and who he ultimately had the potential to become. The temporal, the pain, the suffering was not the joy in and of itself. It was the shift towards the long term, towards the focus of the eternal or for him to live the rest of his life as a champion. So here's the practical for us. If you're in here, well, you are in here. If you're going through a trial, perhaps you have some temptation. Maybe the temptation is the trial in and of itself. It's not this auxiliary you know, overarching trial. It's just, I mean, you have this temptation that you've just been fighting and wrestling with and fighting and wrestling with and fighting and wrestling with. And maybe it seems like it's beat you. Maybe it seems like it's not even a big deal anymore. Five years ago, you would have said, I would never do that. Today, you can't imagine life without it. You can't imagine how you could beat it. Here's what I want you to know. It's not the decision to defeat it that ultimately defeats it. It's your decision to focus on the goodness of God 
daily that gives you the desire for the eternal, that eclipses your desire for the temporal and gives you the strength and the power through the Holy Spirit to do that. So here's what I want you to do. If you're in here, again, you are in here. But if you want to begin to fight, not at the point of sin, but at the point of desire itself, here's what I want you to do. I want you to simply begin to spend time daily focusing on God and his goodness. And here's how I want you to do that. We're currently reading through the book of James. I want you to every day for the rest of this week, because Sunday's kind of the first day, read a chapter in the book of James. That's it. I just want you to spend time daily in the rhythm of life focusing on God. Focus, shift because everything in our world says now, 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 here, 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 this world, this world, this world, this world. I just want you to spend maybe the first five minutes, maybe the first 10 minutes, if you're a little bit slower, a reader like me, you know, I just want you to spend a little bit of time reading one chapter in the book of James and allowing God to shift your focus to the eternal. I know there's not as many chapters in the book of James, but the good thing is you can always just start over. And I want you to begin the process, begin the habit of seeing God daily. And here's what I promise will happen. Your focus, my focus, our collective focus as a church will shift from the immediate to all of a sudden we start to see God. We start to see the goodness of God. We start to see that ultimately God is good, not the things that we want are good. And in doing that, as our focus shifts, our desire shifts, our love for God shifts, And instead of desire that leads to sin, that leads to death, our desire for God will lead to perseverance, which will ultimately lead to the crown of life. So if you don't hear anything else, here's what you need to know. If you're suffering, if you're trialing, if you're being tempted, would you please spend five minutes every day for the next week reading the book of James, and I'm telling you, it has the absolute potential to shift your focus, to shift your desire, and potentially change your entire life. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time, and I pray for any of my friends who are in this room who are just going through it right now. God, the thought just simply of maturation of you in the trials that grows our endurance, that gives us maturity. God, it it just, it's positive information, it's good stuff, but it just really doesn't help because we feel such a need right now to escape the pressure right now, to satiate the appetite right now, to feel okay again, to feel normal again right now. I pray that as we Seek you, God. As we seek you and focus on your goodness, your grace, your love displayed for us on the cross, that God, you would give us, you would shift us to a love for you. And as that desire for you grows, you would eclipse the desire 
for temporal satisfaction. You would help us and empower us to persevere. And as we persevere, we would know that ultimately, Jesus, we get to be and spend eternity with you no matter what happens on this earth. And so would you help us to see that, help us to focus on that as we daily go to you and focus on you. God, would you change us no matter what we're going through? No matter what sin, no matter what temptation, no matter what thing has its claws inside of us, would you change us, Jesus, as we simply focus on you and you become the desire of our heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.